What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Y 100% angloparlante, acompañados en todo momento de Monitores Vaughan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al Western civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams, and on this program, I'm going to talk a little bit about guns. Guns and weapons in general, at least at first. The idea that the greater the distance, in other words, the further away you are from the target from presumably the person you are trying to kill, the better it is. Uh, this was the theory. Uh, this is what everybody was talking about, that hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat is brutal and that uh, combat at a distance is civilized. Now, if you go back into history and see that... Um, Well, there was always a, a, a warrior caste, right? A warrior class of people, generally aristocrats, who spent their lives training for, for combat. And these people were the elite. Uh, so, for example, in, in warrior societies like um, Los Celtiberos, for example... The common people, the non-warriors, were given ordinary burials, uh, quite often in the, uh, in the house, uh, below the house they were living in. You would dig uh, into the ground, past the floor of the house, and then you would inter or bury the body there. However, warriors were given a special, um, special burial. And no, I, I don't even mean burial. What I mean is that their uh, their their bodies were fed.
into vultures. And so their mortal remains, right? Restos mortales, their mortal remains were consumed by these birds, right? Carroñeros, these carrion eaters, which would then transport the remains up into the sky, uh, presumably uh, to the world of the gods. But as I say, everywhere uh, warriors were special. And the warrior elite was always given access to the best technology. Every time there were new weapons, every time there was an innovation in the old weapons, it would be a, a limited number of people, a very limited number of people, with access to high-tech weapons. And... These people were considered uh, una rafa aparte, no, or a breed apart from from normal human beings. Now the rest, um, quite often, they were talking about a tripartite division, especially in Indo-European cultures. This division into three Indo-European cultures love the number three. All right, um, um, three gods in heaven. Uh, the division on earth into three different kinds of people. Uh, the people responsible for feeding the rest, right? The people who produce food. Then the people who think and pray and have contact with God or the gods. And then are the people whose responsibility it is to, to protect everything. And perhaps to go out and conquer new territory. And this, of course, would be the warrior class. Uh, nobody else was given access to these weapons. So the, the last thing you wanted was a farmer who knew how to use a weapon. And so this is true. This is true all over the world. Now, um, in China, in the Shaolin monastery, uh, you had this unique situation in which monks, Buddhist monks, had to defend themselves. And uh, because they were not given access to the, uh, the good weapons, the real weapons, uh, they had to innovate. And this is where you get um, some of the Asian martial arts. Uh, after the Second World War, especially when uh, when American soldiers and sailors came into contact with Japanese who understood martial arts. You had a genuine re revolution. Uh, for example, karate. We would, we would usually call it karate. Karate. Um, karate. Um, it means empty hand in Japanese. In other words, <laughs> you don't have a weapon because you don't have access to a weapon because you are not a member of the elite. These are how, the, the way that farmers might defend themselves. Now, in Japan, this talks about the uh, Tokugawa dynasty, right? That um, 350 years of, of complete isolation from the West and pacification so that the samurai caste, the samurai aristocracy, had had nothing to do, had grown kind of soft, and 
in cases of violence or unrest or well it, it was um it, it depended on the the peasants it depended on the farmers to defend themselves and uh, other martial arts invented at this time um using farm utensils uh, using what a farmer has at hand right so that in in many different places in asia they developed the art of fighting with with sticks because <laughs> farmers have access to sticks right farm tools often include sticks in other words uh what we think of as martial arts and what we um what we praise and and uh love about asian martial arts is mostly developed as a historical anomaly not by the superior caste the superior caste for example in japan would have access to a katana if you have a katana you do not need to use your hands and to to hit another person in this case your hands and feet but let's call it proper combat proper warfare was was done at a distance and quite often at an increasing distance and this was considered the model of civilization now the ancient romans used the ballista and the catapult later on in medieval european warfare you had the crossbow a crossbow being ballesta the crossbow was actually developed independently in other places of the world as well and then finally in England or rather technically in Wales you had the um, long bow the arco largo uh, often called the arco largo inglés or the arco largo galés and uh, this was made generally of a very hard wood and quite often um, tejo right the the yew tree or boh right the box wood and at the time well, it was such an in- innovation right in the uh, uh in medieval times in the hundred years war where the english crown considered itself as french as it was english and proclaimed its right to a large large section of what is today france using the crossbow which was considered unfair at the time there was an attempt uh, to convince the pope to prohibit the use of the longbow as being too effective as being inhumane remember that um um human human is humano and humane with an e at the end is uh, behaving in a way that humans should behave right um compassion generosity empathy and uh, other qualities that uh, humans occasionally demonstrate to each other so that uh, not all humans are humane i once saw a uh, there was a science fiction movie in which uh, there was a a group of robots and uh, everybody knew exactly which ones were the robots because this these robots were too humane to be human but uh speaking about humane uh humane warfare 
is, uh, or at least until recently, is considered war at a distance. That is what people were looking for. It was considered exculpatory, right? Uh, it is brutal and savage to kill with your hands, like, like poor people do, using knives or daggers and uh, getting blood on you. Whereas, as I say, until recently, it was considered uh, much more humane to shoot at a distance and not really know whether the projectile had actually killed somebody or not. So that you get the uh, you get the case today where um, somebody um, goes to work, let's say on an Air Force base in Nevada, and is responsible for remotely piloting a drone, which kills people halfway around the world, and this may be no more. Um, no more real to that person than uh, than a video game would be. You know, quite often uh, that person is uh, proud of having killed bad guys and um, and goes home with a clean conscience. Whereas soldiers that have faced hand to hand combat are quite often traumatized. In any case, certainly in the seventeenth, uh, eighteenth century, there there was a great technological breakthrough in weapons in guns, uh, they became much more accurate, much more useful on the battlefield. And this is just when the British Empire really started to get going. And as I say, at the time, it was considered a great advance because at a distance, when you really don't know, when you can't see or feel your enemy, then you have diminished responsibility. As I say, at the time, um, it was considered exculpatory. You shoot your weapon and you are not responsible for what happens next. Although, of course, you know, there was such a thing as uh, conscience. Um, quite often, they, they say that in the First World War, most of the combatants who had the possibility to, to aim, right, apuntar correctly, uh, many of them shot into the air. Many of them uh, deliberately wasted their chance to kill an enemy because they, they didn't want to have that blood on their hands. And, or at least this is something I have read, uh, that by the Second World War, there were many fewer people deliberately wasting the shot. But again, now we're talking about projectiles, now we're talking about firearms, you know, back in the time of Alexander the Great, Greek historians tell us that the the Hindus had a way of discharging flame and missiles on their enemies from a distance. But we really don't know how they did that. Just as much later, much, much later, uh, in Byzantine times, uh, there was a weapon called Greek fire. And we don't know what that was either. But uh, you could spray the enemy or spray the enemy ships because it was often used in naval combat, right, on the water. Um, you would spray the enemy ships. It would ignite. And the description gives us a kind of an idea like like napalm. But, again, we have no idea. We We don't know. Really, it was in Byzantium. It was precisely 
in the taking of Constantinople that for the first time the cannon was invaluable. The walls of Constantinople had resisted countless attempts to conquer the city, but the Ottomans were able to acquire European technology, in this case, large cannons, and the city walls fell. Now, the Reyes Católicos, uh, they, were, they were paying very close attention to uh, what was going on in Constantinople, and they wanted to do the same thing in Granada, so that, for example, um, in Ethica, uh, there, there was a, a factory to build firearms, uh, this, this new technology. But still, it was um, terribly inaccurate. You make bars of iron, and then you tie them together so that they form a tube, right? As, as if these bars of irons were, were like duelas, no? They una barrica. And then the arrows, the hoops, the hoops uh, hold the entire thing together. And the French word for tube is... Canon, that's where you get canyon, and where English gets the word canon. Uh, traditionally, uh, canon was, was singular and plural, um, so you would say three canon, four canon, but very few people do that anymore. So yes, three canons, four canons. Now, as I say, this is uh, kind of like a una barrica, and in English, the the center, or... Anima, el, el hueco, uh, that in English is called the barrel. And barrel means barrica. You have wine that is, um, right? The vino de crianza is barrel aged. But of course, all, all of these things were terribly inaccurate. Uh, this is, um, we have an, we have an expression in English, not by a long shot, ni por un tiro largo which is a ni, ni, ni por asomo. Now, these, these initial weapons, they were using, of course, uh, gunpowder, polvo de armas, which is polvorin, and um, that was a Chinese invention, but generally limited to fireworks, although the, the Chinese did have projectiles as well. Uh, it only really became, let's call it scientific, in, in the West, but again, a, a very, a very inexact, inaccurate science. Uh, originally, the uh, the shot was, or the cannon ball was made of stone. But then they had the idea to make the whole thing out of hierro fundido, right? Cast iron. Hierro trabajado is is wrought iron. W r o u g h t wrought. Um, it's because work. Work today is a regular verb. Work, worked, worked. But in the past, work was an irregular verb, and the participle was wrought. So, for example, I, I have I have wrought a vengeance. He trabajado, he logrado la venganza. And so, as I say, hierro, tra, uh, hierro forjado is wrought iron. Now, by the way, the, the person who, um, the person who works at that time, today a worker, uh, in older English, that would be a right, W-R-I-G-H-T. And there, 
you have lots and lots of names like um, boat right, ship right, cart right, right? El que hace barcos, el que hace carros. But in the case of the cannon, it, it wasn't forged. It wasn't wrought iron. No, it was cast iron. And uh, the cast, cast simply meant echar. So, for example, I don't know. Um, okay, echar semillas al aire, right? Um, por el campo, um, pas por el cultivo que ha sido preparado para, para las semillas y, y echas semillas en el aire. And this was traditionally called to broadcast, right? Tirar ampliamente. And, of course, metaphorically today means, uh, to broadcast means emitir. So that, for example, the BBC, right, stands for British Broadcasting Corporation. We're not talking about throwing seeds in the air. We are talking about radio waves and later television. But this this is the metaphor. So cast, we use cast in, in, in many different ways. And hierro fundido, you, know, you, you cast the iron into a mold. And so the new cannon were made of cast iron, and the cannonballs as well, made of cast iron. Simply an, an iron tube that had been closed at one end. And again, metaphorically, we, we use the animals. Uh, okay, the, the backside of an animal, usually called the breech, B-R-E-E-C-H, the breech. And uh, sometimes the, the backside of a human, so um, uh, el niño que nace del culo. Uh, for example, that's a breech baby, right? Or breech birth. And uh, pantalones, uh, they used to be called breeches. But yes, the, the breech was the, um, was the culata. And the other end, right, the open end of this tube was called the muzzle. And yes, in, in, um, in a weapon like this, in Spanish, you would call it la boca. But... For us, a muzzle is the hocico, or a muzzle could be uh, el, el bozal. Right? When you walk the dog, um, he has to have a muzzle because he has a temper and he can bite people or attack other dogs. Or a muzzle as a verb, to muzzle. Uh, to muzzle can be amordazar. So yes, the, um, the government has tried to muzzle the press. But uh, journalists will not be muzzled. In any case, all of this use in uh, in the the early canon, all of this was um, metaphors taken from animals. Now, uh, you would want to put the gunpowder in the back, and in order to ignite that gunpowder, in order to light the gunpowder, you need. A little passageway. In Spanish, I, I love this in Spanish, it's called el oído, as if this were an ear hole. But in English, uh, we call it the touch hole. And so you have to put a quantity of gunpowder into the muzzle and then push it into the barrel until it is hard against the breech. And then you put paper or something on that powder to keep it in its place. Then you place the big, solid 
ball of iron into the muzzle and as best you can uh, you you push it push it push it all the way back against the paper and the gunpowder now the cannon is smaller than the uh, the aperture uh, so that uh, I'm sorry the, the cannon ball the projectile itself is going to be smaller uh, so in order to keep it from misfiring in order to uh, to give it more more power uh, you have to wrap it wrap it usually in cloth and usually in cloth that has been treated with oil so that there's some kind of lubricant the fit is very tight that way but uh, again there there is no impediment and then finally uh, you need to put something in the uh, oído in the, in the touch hole and in english this is uh, to prime uh, prime uh, prime is usually first or excellent so we have you know prime minister uh, prime time television uh, uh, prime uh, we often say in the prime of life meaning uh, mature but very healthy not not so old as to have como achaques no uh, as to, as to be ailing uh, prime in this case is a synonym for top right this is top form um, top quality uh, top drawer right <laughs> que el, el cajón de arriba right el cajón de encima de todos the top drawer this is really top drawer quality however as a verb to prime is a synonym for to prepare to to get something ready and so you prime the charge this is called a, a priming charge and in spanish uh, i love this el, el cebo as if you were catching an animal Right, if you put, uh, because normally the word cebo is translated as as bait, b a i t. If you're catching a fish, for example, you want to bait the hook. But in Spanish, evidently, uh, pones el cebo en el oído del cañón, and and these are these are mixed metaphors. Okay, um, I have to take a break. I'll be back in a minute. Tanta pasión en lo que hacen, tanta dedicación, porque luego tienes a lo largo del máster, tienes feedbacks con ellos. Y ellos te dicen exactamente cuáles son tus puntos débiles, cuáles son tus fortalezas, cuáles son tus weaknesses, debilidades, ¿no? ¿Sabes? Y cuando ves a alguien que hace tan, con tanta pasión algo, no te viene tan natural decepcionarle. Porque si tú ves a alguien que da el 100%, mí por, por lo menos no me viene como decepcionarte así, es una cuestión de respeto que luego se, desa se desarrolla y se ve también con los compañeros cuando, sobre todo, en un método tan dinámico, tan drilling class maravilloso la motivación desde el primer minuto hasta el último es un factor importante pero no el único la excelencia de nuestros profesores nuestros maestros
maestros de toda la vida, esos que hacían que el resto de tu vida sintieses verdadera pasión por aquella asignatura. Así son nuestros profesores del Máster en Inglés Profesional. ¿Por qué no llamas? ¿Vas a perder esta oportunidad? 911-335833. 911-335833. Llama y solicita gratis tu prueba de nivel. 911-335833. Te sientes orgulloso de ti mismo porque tú lo puedes hacer. Con el Máster en Inglés Profesional puedes conseguir lo que quieras. Tú lo puedes hacer. Me apunté al curso trimestral porque quería mejorar el inglés, lo que pasa que no estaba muy convencido porque no tenía muy claro si iba a ser una clase pues aburrida y monótona que hemos tenido siempre pues en el instituto, que al final no, no te motiva nada, pero el primer día que nos metimos ahí y el profesor nos empezó a meter caña, pues vi que eso pues no iba a ser para nada monótono. Cursos trimestrales de Baugan, 91-133-5833 o grupobaugan.com una semana en un lugar apartado. Nativos angloparlantes de todas partes del mundo. Uno por cada estudiante. Terminantemente prohibido hablar en español. Actividades organizadas y conversaciones en inglés a todas horas. No exageramos. Aquí o hablas inglés o hablas inglés. Y da igual las veces que te lo contemos. Hasta que no lo vivas no sabrás que Baugantown te va a quitar el miedo al inglés para siempre. Lo que pasa en Baugantown no se puede contar. Tienes que vivirlo. Ven a Baugantown. Más información, grupobaugan.com. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pass perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pass perfect, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Field the gap, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ha sacado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, qué crack. El examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Western Civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on the first part of the program, I was talking about guns, the early guns, uh, the guns that were current when the British Empire really got underway. When, um, let's talk about a little about the, uh, the Spanish Empire. And, um, and they were saying for the longest time that uh, one of the secrets to the success of the early Spanish Empire is that the indigenous people of the Americas were frightened of guns. And a lot of historians at this time are saying, no, this is a projection. Uh, the, uh, guns back then, guns were not very accurate. Guns were not very good. Guns were not very useful. And so you could frighten the natives, maybe the first time or the second time. But by the third time, the indigenous peoples heard a gunshot. They knew what it was. And they knew that, you know, half the time, those guns did not fire. The powder would get wet or they wouldn't be enough powder and uh, this this was true in the early days of the Spanish Empire. This was true up until up until the Napoleonic War. Uh, we were talking about uh, lighting the the gun. In this case, uh, let's imagine a, a musket, right? Un mosquete. You have to light the powder in the touch hole, and the priming charge ignites. The sudden explosion of the powder will send a cannonball flying out of the muzzle and presumably towards the enemy. And of course, <laughs> ballistics at that time uh, was a science that was taught. It was um, a- anybody wanting to have a future in the army or navy would have to be very comfortable with trigonometry and calculus, or rather uh, calculus <laughs> as, as soon as it was invented. But uh, yes, you would have to know your way around advanced arithmetic. However, eh, the the accuracy, right, the precision uh, left a lot to be desired. These large cannons were very heavy and very difficult to move around, especially in open fields, especially after it rained. And so, <laughs> and if, if you wanted a hand weapon, um, the initial thing, you know, infantrymen were given a, a miniature cannon. These these were the first things, right? Mounted on wood, which you could hold against your chest, and and then uh, the the soldier would have to make the flame, right? Um, create a flame, and uh, apply that flame to the touch hole, and you couldn't really aim. Apuntar because it was at chest level. The the backfire, right? The the um, uh, reaction would probably do more damage to the soldier's chest than, than the projectile would do to the enemy. But then uh, somebody suggested that it would work a lot better if there was a trigger. This was easy because um, because the old crossbows, right? Ballestas. Uh, crossbows had triggers. The The mechanism of a trigger was understood. It was relatively easy to apply to the gun. Then about 400 years ago, uh, it was moved from the chest to the shoulder so that it was easier to, to use the eye. 
And now the the mechanism, the mechanism on the um, the touch hole, uh, that was going to be called a lock, just as in Spanish it was called a ferradura. So ferradura de mecha, a match lock. Now uh, the old match, you think match is uh, una ferrilla, or I think um, in Latin America it's ferrillo. And this, yes, t- uh, today that would be a match, but. Um, in early days, match was was mecha, and the uh, the first weapons that they were used on were the muskets. Now, musket mosquete, as also a French word, just like cannon is a French word, uh, musket is a French word, and evidently it was um, a variation of a their word for the gavilan, right? In English, uh, the sparrowhawk, because in English. Um, there are a lot of lot of birds of prey, um, and if it's not an an eagle, then we generally call it a hawk, right? Hawk is um, often translated. Uh, well, Spanish people think that a hawk is halcón, but no, halcón uh, is falcon, and that's just one kind of hawk. We have dozens of hawks. We just put put all these birds, uh, all of these. Birds of prey, right? No, aves de presa. All of these birds of prey into the same category and call them hawks. Just kind of like, um, in English, uh, I don't know, roble, encina y alcornoque, right? The, the, these are oaks. It really wouldn't occur to us to, to really specify. The, uh, carrasco as well. That's, a, that's an oak. A scrub oak, a holm oak in terms of encina. In, in California, there are eight species of oak. The live oak, the green oak, but but for us, it's these are all just oaks. But uh, again, as I say, going back, um, these these matches, these mechas, uh, soldiers did not have the luxury of self igniting matches. Right, uh, they had to go around in the middle of battle with these mechas, with these match, the slow match uh, around their musket. Meters of, call it rope, that is ignited and, and burning slowly. If they, if, if it went out, uh, they, they would have to use, um, silex, no, pedernal. They would have to use flint. And, and you can imagine the, uh, <laughs> with the wind and the rain, uh, fighting, um, uh, bullets all around you. Uh, and the wind blows the gunpowder out of the pan, right on the on the touch hole. And this, you know, there were several um, innovations. In Spain, you had uh, the cerradura de Miquilete in times of Carlos V with uh, with a wheel that you would have to dar cuerda, right? You would have to wind it up the way you wind a clock up, which finally ended up with the flint musket or flint lock musket. Uh, these flint lock muskets, um, they, they were used in the Napoleonic Wars and in, in the Spanish Peninsular War. The, uh, the, the use of, well, um, they were called the brown bess, bess being a diminutive name of Elizabeth. And so the brown best because of the color, it didn't always work. It didn't always produce enough sparks 
to ignite the gunpowder, right? The uh, sparks are chispas. And, you know, it took, it took quite a while to reload. E- even these, um, it was so difficult to, to reload uh, that you would have to have people firing in order, right? The first line fires, and then they duck down and try to reload close to the ground, agachados, right? While the line behind them fires over their heads, and then these people in turn duck down, and you have a third line firing. And so all of the soldiers are now close to the ground trying to reload, and uh, when the first line has successfully reloaded, they stand up again and aim, but there's no accuracy beyond, say, 80 meters. And you can imagine if it takes, I don't know, a minute and a half to reload, um, uh, somebody can run those 80 meters and destroy your opponent. Uh, This is why the bayonet was invented. Again, another French word. As you can imagine, these, these innovations in technology are mostly French. However, the solution came shortly afterwards, and um, this time from a Scottish minister. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, well, p- perhaps ironic that a man of the clergy would be responsible for one of the great innovations in weapons used in war. However, at the time, many people were able to... Uh, to justify this, right? There had always been sort of capellanes. There had always been um, priests working with soldiers who were able to justify their presence, even though it seems to go against everything that the Bible is trying to teach. I mean, the, if, if, if the, the number one commandment of Christianity is amar al prójimo, right? And, and that is what really distinguishes the um, the Christian message from from anything else, either before or since, then you really wouldn't have members of the clergy in this kind of organized state violence. However, at this time, and and uh, it, it was very clear you had um, you had people with very strong religious convictions who were accomplices in. Things like slavery or the sale of opium uh, to try and, you know, make the, make the Chinese into a nation of addicts in exchange for tea. And the justification quite often was to see uh, history as providential, right? As, as God's um, story, God's will imposed on humanity across time. And then, of course, later on in, well, in the um, 18th century, you get a, an increasing, increasingly enlightened view, right? The uh, Ilustración, uh, which leads to a more secular view, but with exactly the same conclusion that there are forces in history. And uh, there are people quite explicitly, um, for example, um, fabricantes de armas, right? Ar- arms makers, arms merchants, who, uh, well, in the case of England, who are Quakers, well, Quakeros, a religion that believes that there is no justification whatsoever for war, uh, but they explain themselves, right? They try to diminish 
their responsibility, saying that uh, they are a product of their time and that you have to suspend judgment because there are historical forces at work. It's not my fault. I was just born when I was born. And everybody's doing it, meaning that, if, you know, if, if everybody's guilty, then nobody's guilty. This is going to be used in the future with Marxism as well. Historical forces are out of our control so that our individual acts are not our own responsibility. We don't have to respond for what we did. It's, it's not our fault. It's history's fault. And this, as I say, a very common justification for um, um, religious people working in the British Empire. One of them, Alex Forsyth, the Reverend Alex Forsyth, who had this idea of making a hammer hit a cap containing chemicals. And so the percussion of this hammer would cause an explosion, which in turn would ignite the gunpowder. This was the capsula fulminante in Spanish, or pistona was also called, but yeah, fulminante. Oh, yeah, this was, this was a time of a lot of invention. There was a, um, by the way, it was a member of the clergy who invented la cosechadora, right? The, the reaper, the mechanical reaper. It was a member of the clergy who invented the, uh, telar mecanico. So that, yeah, this, this was a time with, uh, with quite a lot of talent coming from sort of um, unsuspected places and then being, uh, this very important, being put into practice immediately. They they did a test. Uh, the Reverend Alex Forsyth was brought down to, to show uh, what his invention could do. And uh, they took the, the brown bess, which at that time was the army standard and they fired 6,000 shots and of those 6,000 shots the brown bess misfired 1,000 times in other words the, the the rate of success was low frustratingly low and now this um, clergyman's percussion cap was fired 6,000 times and it misfired only 36 of those times, and no further proof was required. The uh, the military was able to change very quickly. And again, there were no um, intereses creados, right? There were no vested interests fighting for the old system, even though it didn't work. Uh, nobody tried to impede the course of progress, which in many cultures is a serious problem. Now, up until this time, there had been experiments with um, trying to load the weapon from the back. You remember that the back of the weapon is called the breech, and the front of the weapon, the empty part of the weapon, what in Spanish is la boca, is called the muzzle. And so there were two ways to do it at this point. One is muzzle loading, which was the standard, and... The other was breech loading, and there had been experiments with breech loading guns, but all of them had been unsatisfactory. In Spanish, uh, muzzle loading is avancarga, and breech loading is called retrocarga. Breech loading weapons were considered, um, or, or at that time, they were still too fragile. You can imagine what happens if it, uh, 
if it backfires, right? If the um, if if the breach is too fragile to contain the explosion, we talk about salir por la culata. We talk about backfiring. Um, we actually use that metaphor quite often in English, much more than in Spanish. We use it uh, on such a regular basis that you, you know it des- doesn't even occur to us to uh, um, the the metaphor is is from weapons. Yeah, uh, my plan backfired. But breach, loading weapons were, were inevitable. Uh, the thing is that um, when when you had what was called the the anima lisa, right? The the smooth bore. That's B O R E, and to bore is perforar. But you, when you have the uh, the smooth bore, and and, uh, and and you have to put. Uh, for example, a cannonball in there. As I say, you have to wrap the cannonball in cloth and cloth that has been previously covered in oil so that it won't zigzag. But it always zigzags and, and you, re- you really never know in, in which direction it will, um, it, it will shoot out of the muzzle. A lot of this could be solved if, if you could have a breech loading Weapon, right? Retrocarga, uh, you would be able to put in a projectile that fit much more closely and therefore take full advantage of the explosion. And th- that's no way, no way to, uh, no way to do any precision. By the way, the precision, the, uh, the person who can hit the target well or hit the mark, that person is called a marksman. You can be a good marksman or you can be a bad marksman. If you are a truly excellent marksman, then you are a sharp shooter. And of course, sharpshooters everywhere are highly valued. You know, like, like the divas in the opera. Unfortunately, uh, in Spanish, as far as I can tell, a sharpshooter is, is a francotirador, which is, this is most unfortunate because you use the same word for snipers in uh, in English. The uh, the sharpshooter is the experto en punteria, right? Whereas the sniper hides himself, he conceals himself, and then shoots in a way that is unexpected. Uh, sniping is one of the fundamental tactics of guerra de guerrillas, right? Of guerrilla war, modern urban warfare on, on a street, uh, you will have snipers in order to uh, dissuade people from leaving their homes. And as far as I know, the Spanish uses the same word for these two very, very different uh, people. And the, the, uh, the, the obvious result was uh, the rifle. Um, everybody knew that if, if, you, if it turns around quickly, right, if it, if it rotates if it spins, it's going to go through the air much more quickly, uh, much more accurately. This is, uh, everybody knew this. Uh, this was the purpose, for example, of the feathers on an arrow. So yes, uh, the, this was known in historic times. You have to, you have to put a spin on it. And they decided that instead of the traditional animalisa, you were going to have a boar with grooves. Right, a groove, como muesca or ranura. It can be in metal or wood. Now, for some reason, groove. Um, 
I don't know why. Back back in the 60s, uh, people talked about groove, grooving a lot. Um, I, I, I don't know. Estar en la llanura, estar en la, la muesca, um, estar de buena onda. And so groovy became the way to say guay. Estoy a gustito. Estoy, I, I'm grooving. Grooving to the music, grooving to the rhythm. But as I say, the, the, the original groove, the, the real groove is this kind of surco, right? A furrow, or what we call the thread. Thread is normally hilo, but, uh, when we're talking about a screw, uh, tornillo, when we're talking about a screw, the thread is the rosca. This will make it more aerodynamic. And of course, bullets had to become more aerodynamic, right? They, they were going at, um, something like, um, 2,400 kilometers per hour. Yes, the first, Bullets were round, but after that, they were going to have to have a, a pointed nose. They were going to have to become aerodynamic. True for bullets, true for arrows, true for torpedoes as well. But of course, how how does it fit better? Uh, it fits better because under these extreme circumstances, uh, today's bullet is made with a depression or un hueco, right, at the end. So that when the explosion takes place, the end of the bullet begins to expand and fill the grooves more momentarily. Uh, the It expands and then is forced into the bore. And that's how it begins to, to spin. By the way, the um, uh, rifle, rifle comes from an old English word. Right? Finally, we get, uh, we get English terminology rather than French terminology for innovation. And, uh, yes, in, in older English, rifle meant, meant, uh, that, just, uh, la, la rosca. But of course, um, again, ballistics was, was still a question. It was going to be, uh, how to aim, how to adjust the aim, how high to aim, how much you thought that, uh, atmospheric conditions, whether, uh, wind, Temperature, how you thought that that might affect the, um, the, the, the projectile with terribly complicated math. And usually you would have to have somebody, um, somebody, uh, to, to be able to adjust the trajectory, right? A little more to the left, a little more to the right. And all of these concerns were being developed, were being addressed at, uh, at the time of the beginning of the British Empire. I've run out of time. Thank you for listening, and please, listen to my next program. laboral, lo único que cuenta es ser más atractivo que otros candidatos, gozar de mayor estimación. Y el aspecto que más impacta a una empresa cuando mira a un candidato joven es su nivel de inglés. 
Si es muy alto, es contratado. Si no lo es, pues no, aunque sea el número uno de su promoción. Nuestro MIP, nuestro máster en inglés profesional, resuelve este tema para el candidato. El máster en inglés profesional de Baugan. Llámenos 911335833. 911335833. Porque aprenden, disfrutan, conviven, juegan, experimentan, hacen amigos y lo más importante, asimilan el idioma de forma natural y pierden el miedo a hablar, abriéndose paso en este complicado mundo de la comunicación en inglés. Así son los campamentos de verano Baugan. Cada año más de 3.000 familias confían en nosotros para el aprendizaje del inglés de sus hijos en los distintos tipos de campamentos que ofrecemos. Por ejemplo, programa completo de inmersión en inglés con alojamiento incluido. Tus hijos hablarán inglés durante todo el día mientras participan en talleres, juegos y actividades deportivas y multiaventura. Y todo eso sin clases. Todas las modalidades de campamentos Baugan están diseñados para niños y niñas entre 6 y 15 años, independientemente de la programación o la instalación. En nuestros campamentos de inglés se acostumbran a utilizar el inglés sin miedo y con total confianza, en un entorno rural, acogedor y seguro. La coordinación pedagógica de Baugan asegura un ambiente de inversión, cuidado y de calidad. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés. 911335832. 911335832. Ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago. Agua plazos sin intereses. Llámanos al 911335832. Campamentos de verano Baugan. El líder del sector. 911335832. No lo dejes para el último momento. Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos.